we, we've been going through all this, reading the Bible like Jesus. That's our focus. Um, we've, we've talked about all these things. So I'm just going to pray um, and let's dive in. Today, I'm, I'm excited because we kind of get to, to really taste it. You know, we've been talking about it, but today we get to actually like, do it. So um, Father God, just once again, I pray that through um, the study and through the scriptures, we might be led to Jesus and be given to get, be given the wisdom to live our lives in light of that relationship. So God, just thank you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, Luke 24, that's where we've been this whole time. You know, Jesus is walking down the road. Uh, he, he meets up with some disciples. They don't know it's him yet. He reveals the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament points to him. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. And then eventually he says, you know, uh, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, that Tanakh ordering like we just saw, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's kind of what we've been all about is understanding the scriptures. And so today we talk about one more way to understand the scriptures. Um, There's a little quote on uh, your page here, on your handout here. Um, It says, if there was one bit of wisdom, one rule of thumb, one single skill I could impart, one useful tip I could leave that would serve you well the rest of your life, what would it be? It's that this single most important practical skill that I've ever learned as a Christian, it is this, never read a Bible verse. That's right, never read a Bible verse. Instead, always read a paragraph at least. And so what we're talking about today is this idea of context, that the Bible is ancient literature, and you can't just read a line and just walk away with understanding, like you know exactly what that's supposed to mean, because what we do is we apply our own context into it. We talked about this the first week. Don't let your experiences define Scripture. Allow Scripture to define your experiences. And when we read it out of context, that's a term that we're probably familiar with, like in our Sunday school classes and stuff like that. We talk about reading in context. Don't take it out of context. You know, when you want to apply scripture, don't apply it out of out of context. Um, you want to apply it in context. And so, um, context. I have a couple definitions. It's like the the parts of a discourse, discussion, or writing that surround a word or a passage and can clarify its meaning. So there's there's the context in the text. That's what's actually written, but also. Um, the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, idea, in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. So you have the textual context, but you also have the historical context, the cultural context. Um, you know, the Bible is written in a context that is not our own. You know, when the authors sat down to write the Bible, they didn't know what our world would look like. You know, they had no clue that we would be in an AC'd room today, some halfway AC'd. The heat still has uh, keeps it from keeping up. But um, this this whole idea of context is so integral to to reading scripture that that when you don't, um, so many people they'll, they'll man they just lose the whole meaning of scripture. They'll misapply Jesus's words because they don't know the context. I mean, y'all know this. This is stuff that we've talked about, you know, in in Corinthians or in one of Paul's letters. He says, women cannot speak in the church. There's a lot of people that misinterpret that, misquote that, misapply that. Um, There's been a lot of people that have turned away because they read that and like, what? 
Christians don't let women speak up and you know stuff like that it's, it's like no 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 there's context to it both in the text but also in the culture and so um how we read the bible another quote how we read and study the bible drastically changes depending on how we view it the context we view it in um so there's gaps when we come to the bible there's gaps um there's a temporal gap you know the events of scripture of most of scripture are at least two thousand years old and even older the further back you go in the old testament so there's a two thousand year time gap and what happens over time is things change. Just think about the last three years, COVID, how much has changed. The way we go out into places. You know, people used to stand in line close to each You don't see that anymore. You might see it a little bit, but you, you notice, like, you, and you just naturally, oh, I'm just going to leave a little bit of distance. It's, you, it's changed. Um, the, the technology in our world, the last three years, but also the last two decades, you know, since the invention of the internet back in the 90s and the iPhone 2007, I think, man, technology has, you know, we all have it on us now. Um, that's changed. That's just 20 years. That's just three years. Think about 2000. So there's a gap with the Bible in time. There's also a gap in distance. You know, the events of the Bible happened 7,000 miles away from Abilene. Um, that changes things. So some of y'all have had the privilege, and, and one day, I hope I will, where you've gotten to go to Israel and look at the remains and all these archaeological sites, but that's exactly what it is. It's remains. So not only is there a distance, but over time, those things have been moved, wiped away, and we just get to look at the remains and study the remains, and that still tells us stuff, but that's a contextual gap. Um, another one is language. One of the biggest ones, language. The Bible was written and spoken in different languages than our own. And when you have languages, different words and the, the context of words mean different things. You know, the, the, the word for love, we'll talk a little bit about, a little bit about this in a little bit. Um, but the word love means a little bit fuller, has a little bit fuller meaning or different meaning than um, our version of love that we use in our culture, um, in our society. And that kind of leads to the last contextual gap is culture. Um, probably the biggest one, you know, culture influences its language, it influences its geography, it influences, you know, this mountain means something because of our culture. Um, you know, this time period means something because of our, you know, culture influences everything. And the Bible happened in, and was written in a drastically different culture than our own. Now there's lots of similarities. There's things that never change. And we talk about that, you know, a lot, how, you know, uh, Ecclesiastes talks everything under the sun. It's, it's already happened. There's nothing new under the sun. But there's some differences that we do need to recognize in order to better understand this ancient text. And so um, a quote that I have here, it says uh, by Lois, uh, I don't know how to say that last name still. Somebody told me and I forgot. But um, I just don't know what the TV sound makes. But anyway, uh, as much of a hurdle as it seems to travel back in time to the Emmaus Road, the gap between us and the biblical world is actually wider culturally than it is temporally. So if you wanted to go back in time to where Jesus was at, you still would, you'd have to cross a language barrier. You're, you might you can, you can go back in time and you can be in that place, but there's a culture and a language barrier that you still, like, those are big barriers you have to cross. Um, 
And so what this means is that we must return to our Jewish roots. We must return to the Jewishness of Jesus. Um, Here's another quote here. Uh, We believe that the Bible was written for us, that it's for everyone of all times and places because it's God's word. But it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind or even our culture in view. And so that's something you have to remember is the Bible was written to a specific audience, a specific context. It is for everybody. Everybody can come to Christ. Everybody can engage in the Bible. You don't have to have it in a specific language like other religious texts. No, it's for everybody. But we have to remember the context of it. Again, this is something that we might be familiar with, um, but it's a huge stepping stone when it comes to engaging the Bible, understanding the Bible, reading the Bible like Jesus. Um, And so... When it comes to reading the Bible as ancient literature, you know, we have to remember the context. And if we don't, you know, when we take it out of context, we, we get taken out of context. We get taken astray. Um, so, so real quick, um, you know, this is, this is I, I love this. Um, this. This whole idea of returning to our Jewish roots, from what I've studied, and y'all, so y'all have more experience than I do, um, I, my last little age joke didn't go so well in the last meeting, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but apparently, from what I'm understanding, is this is a recent endeavor, uh, just a few decades old, of returning back to our Jewish roots. And maybe some of y'all can correct me afterward. But here's here's what I mean by that, and I, I love this. Um, you know. Jesus interacted with a wide group of people, Samaritans, Romans, Greeks. Yet Jesus, his upbringing and his life and his ministry was contextually and and deeply Jewish. Um, This is something I first heard about when I was in mid-high school. I was, you know, finding my love and passion for Jesus and and discovering just the, the tip of the iceberg of my call into ministry. And, and somebody gave me um, some recordings by this Jewish uh, Christian guy, uh, this leader in this. Um, Dr. Ray Vanderland is his name. Um, but the guy that gave it to me, and I love this, um, was uh, Michael Swain. Michael Swain is the one who gave me these recordings. And uh, over the course of time, I listened to all, I, you know, I, 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 was, I was sold. They were so good. It made Jesus really come alive. I understood more about who Jesus was in the context. Um, and I, I listened to them all, and, and it was great. But the problem was this was the only source I knew that I could find um, about this kind of idea, returning to the Jewishness of Jesus and that context of him as a Jewish male in the first century. Um, and so... Another thing I learned over time is that you want to have at least two reliable sources for 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 it to be, you know, proved right in a sense. Um, that's something the Bible kind of talks about. Two or more witnesses um, is what forms a strong testimony. You know, that's something I've learned in college. You want a lot of resources um, all saying the same thing. But anyway, I, I couldn't find any. So I even asked my professors, have you heard of this guy? And they're like, no, I don't. So... It wasn't until recently, um, in the last few years, where I started seeing this guy's name mentioned a lot more 
in reference to some of his work. And these guys and girls were, were saying the same things. That they were talking about returning to the Jewishness of Jesus, this context of what, how Jesus lived and, and what he was doing with his ministry and all of that. And I got really excited uh, because I finally found some backup evidence of this is a real thing. And then some of these sources finally were telling me this is actually just a recent, you know, a couple decades old endeavor to return to the Jewishness of Jesus. Because for such a long time, Christian and Jewish people haven't gotten along. You know, the Christian Christians, the early Christians, um, they're, they're, they're fighting with the Jewish people, you know, because Jewish people are just like, no, Jesus isn't the Messiah. And, you know, he is and all that. And so they, you actually have some quotes from, um, I don't remember it all, but some ancient uh, uh, texts and ancient people saying, if it's Jewish, it's nothing to us. We're just going to move on with our Christian. And so this gap became wider and wider culturally. And this, so um, when it comes to reading the Bible as ancient con- uh, uh, literature, we have to remember this ancient context, this Jewish context. Um, and and it's, it's huge. We have to continue to do a, a cross-cultural traverse back into their world in order for the text to make complete sense. We can't just say, oh, this, this is talking about what I went through today. It might be. The Spirit might be putting that on your heart. But until you learn it in its context, you can get very dangerous out of its context. And so, real quick before I continue, everything that we've been talking about, each part of this perspective, this paradigm that we've talked about, reading the Bible is human and divine literature, unified literature, messianic, communal, ancient. And it, it all it's all important. None of it's required to get you to heaven or anything like that. Again, the Bible is for all people. This is all about giving you tools and skills to better uh, read the Bible like Jesus in a sense. Um, That's the title of it all. Um, But my goal is just to show this, that the the Bible has a context that if we look into this context, we're going to see more where it's going to make more sense. We're going to find deeper layers of meaning. Um, that, it, that it's presenting to us. And so um, here's what we're going to do. Uh, when, we, when we read a lot of these ideas, um, we, we begin to cross some of these cultural gaps just by applying some of the other things that we've learned. But it was written in another time, another language, culture. It requires some work. That's the thing about the Bible that a lot of people don't understand. Picking up and reading it is good, but there's a lot of areas it requires some work. You know, it, it requires you to actually invest in it. Um, and, and that when we engage in the Bible, we're doing, again, that cross-cultural work. We're engaging in a cross-cultural experience. So here's what we're going to do. Page three of your handout, we're going to look at Psalm 29. And this is where I'm excited because, like, we're actually doing it. Um, we, we've talked about partnering with the Spirit, um, the Tanakh ordering, uh, the seams, in, in books, in fact, I just discovered the seams in the book of Samuel, um, or the, the framing of it, the whole, you know, First Samuel, Second Samuel, I was sharing this last meeting, the prayer of Hannah, and, uh, or the poem of Hannah, and the poem of David, are bookends to that book, and it, it sets up the story, Hannah's praying about how you lifted me up, and that you lowered the proud, you know, and, and Hannah's story, her, her sister wife, I figured out what to call it, you know, if you have two wives, what do they call each other? Sister wife. I learned that today. Um, you know, that there was this, this uh, feud. Well, then you have Samuel and Eli, and then you have Saul and David, and, and it's just, it's a pattern. It's show, anyway, it's just really cool. So 
Psalm 29. Um, we're going to kind of take everything that we've practiced. Just do your best to remember some of those things, whatever you can remember. Um, I have highlighted for you repetition because that's important. And you'll see why in a second. But um, we're just going to read it. And then I want you to kind of walk with me through it and share some of your thoughts or what you're seeing or what sticks out um, using some of the tools and skills that we've learned. And remember, part of context is, okay, what kind of literature is this? This is a poem. And so when we read poems in Scripture, we need to understand that poetry is a method of communication that evokes deeper awareness, that, that it's a kind of human language that says more and says it more intensely than ordinary language. It's trying to communicate something, but it's going to make it a lot more difficult in some senses. That's, that's my summary of poetry, at least in high school. Um, so part of understanding the Bible and the context is understanding the kind of literature that your literary style that is being used, whether it's poetry, narrative, um, apocalyptic, uh, satire, like the book of Jonah is kind of like a satire um, story. Um, so anyway, this is a, a poem, and, and the idea is it's trying to draw you in to think, to read, reread on a deeper level than just picking up a book and reading and being done, um, like many of our books today. So Psalm 29, I'm going to read it all the way through. I have a different translation up here. You can open your Bibles and, and look at a different one or your Bible app or whatever. Uh, but Psalm 29, give to Yahweh, O sons of God, give to Yahweh glory and strength. Give to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship Yahweh, the majesty of holiness. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh is over the mighty waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is majestic. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Mount Sirion like a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh strikes with flashes of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh causes deer to give birth and strips the forest bare. In his temple, everything shouts glory. Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood, and Yahweh is enthroned as king eternal. Yahweh gives strength to his people. Yahweh blesses his people with peace. All right, so that's Psalm 29. And so what I want to do is just kind of go back through it verse by verse, and I want to just kind of ask, does anything stick out to you? Using some of the skills and all that that we've learned, does anything? So give to Yahweh, O sons of God. Give to Yahweh glory and strength. Give to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship Yahweh, the majesty of holiness. Any thoughts so far? Okay, so we see the word glory used throughout. And, 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 and what, is, what is happening with this glory, at least in these first verses? Why is it mentioned? Who is it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, you kind of give, give the God glory, okay? What else are we giving God in these first few verses? Strength. strength. So we're giving him glory and strength, um, you can even kind of tie majesty in there if you want. That's just a word they're using. So, so we're giving it to him. So 
So, or, or it's being given to him. Who is, who is giving it to him? It's, we are, is one thought. There's two, two thoughts to this. When it says, oh, sons of God, um, that, that wording is always used in a very specific context just a few times. And it's, some, some people believe it's just the heavenly hosts. You know, the heavenly, all of God's heavenly hosts give God. So he's being praised in heaven, but you can also throw us into it. I mean, I think that's just as important. Um, so give to Yahweh, O sons of God. Give to Yahweh. So what's different as we're going through these first two verses? What's, what's not, or what changes the repetition? That worship. So, so this is common in Scripture. And in fact, I'm, I'm going to show you an example Proverbs 6, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. There's several instances of this in Scripture where it, it, it's trying to drag you in. And, and in our example, Psalm 29, it's repetition. Um, you know, oh, wrong one. Give to Yahweh, give to Yahweh, give to Yahweh. Worship, it, it changes it because you're kind of expecting give again. And so what are you doing, though, when you're giving God glory, when you're giving God strength? You're worshiping. And so it's, it's just trying to emphasize a little bit about um, what it means to worship Yahweh. But it, it, it's leading you in. This repetition is purposely leading you in. And then it shows you where it's leading you. Give, give, give worship. Um, give glory. Give honor. Give power. Um, this repetition, that's kind of one of the things that, that we've talked about. It helps communicate something if you follow it. Um, a message and a focus of this poem. It leads you, helps connect some things, and then give to Yahweh. Yahweh is the most repeated word, I think, but there's another in this whole psalm. What, what is the most repeated thing in this psalm? What's highlighted the most, I guess, is another question I can... The voice of Yahweh. So we move on. It says, the voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh is over the mighty waters. All right, so what's, what sticks out in this verse? I'll come back to the voice in a second. Is anything, are y'all reminded of anything just in this creation? Yeah. Exactly. So, so you have Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, so there's that voice part. So let's go back to Psalm 29 here. Um, hold on, I got to get the right translation. So the voice of Yahweh. So, so we have a couple things repeated here. The waters, every time water is mentioned in Scripture, it's purposely recalling something. Most of the time, it's recalling the chaotic waters of like the flood or like the Red Sea or all the way back to creation. There are living waters, which is a little bit different, but... Um, so, so God is over the waters. We get this picture of Genesis, the creation. That's the picture, the imagery we're given here. And imagery is a big component in this psalm. But here's what's really cool. The voice. Um, this is a context thing. This is part of language, which we're, we're at a disadvantage. We don't speak Hebrew. But there's some resources that can help show us these things. But language and definition, the, way, the meaning of words... Um, so, so this, this word, the voice here, literally means sound or noise. Sound or noise. The sound of Yahweh, the noise of Yahweh. Now, if you attribute it to a person or to God, it becomes voice. If you attribute it to something random, it's a noise. If you contribute it to 
thunder or, 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 or lightning in a storm, it becomes thunder. Okay, so, so follow this image. So the voice of Yahweh over the vo- God of glory thunders. There's this connection here that God's voice is like thunder. Um, so we're going to keep following that imagery. That this, this, this hyperlink back into Genesis, he's over many chaotic waters, but there's another image here of thunder and this noise of God and this noise of the sky, voice and thunder. Um, so the first picture that we get here in Psalms is a voice uh, of thunder, of power, power over the chaotic waters. Genesis 1, of, of which God soon separates, God speaks into. Um, and so this is all communicated without saying anything about God's power. Well, then we come to verse 4. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. So it told you he's powerful without saying it. And then it told you by saying it. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is majestic. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. What other images do you get here? The imagery portrayed in these verses. So, so one of the images here, I mean, cedars, trees, breaking. Um, have you ever seen a storm uproot a tree? Or at least seen the tree after the storm? That's usually how it works, right? Um, there was one time in, in, in my mountaineering trips that I did in college. Uh, we went up to Colorado, did a lot of hiking around. We're in this dense forest on these mountains, and we're hiking. And then all of a sudden, we come out, and we see the sun, and all these trunks and trees, they're, they're laying down. There's a, like a couple acres worth on the side of this mountain of trees. This line, every other tree is fine. And I'm like, well, what happened? was this like a, a landslide or something? And so I asked the professor, and he's like, no, this is just wind. You know, these gusts of wind will come through the mountains and flatten the trees. Um, and so you have a picture here that's very similar. The voice of Yahweh, this powerful voice, breaks the cedars. It, the cedars of Lebanon just Boom, they're gone. They're, sh- they're shattered in pieces, breaks into pieces. Um, in Lebanon, these cedars, context, co- this is context here, um, these were the strongest trees in the country. These are sh- the strongest trees of the area. This is like saying uh, our, our red oaks and something like, stuff like that. Those, those trees that, man, they don't stand a chance against the voice of Yahweh. They can withhold any storm except the voice of Yahweh, his thunder. So we have this image here that God is powerful and he's majestic, but he can break even the strongest trees just with his voice, this thunder. Um, and we'll come back to Lebanon in a second. Most maps, when you pull up, you know, uh, Israel map, it won't show you where Lebanon is. Um, but it's really interesting. We'll come back to that. Uh, let's keep going. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Mount Sirion like a young wild ox. All right, does anybody have their Bibles out? Does anybody have the King James translation in here? I didn't think so. We've moved on, right? Um, I'm just kidding. But King James, which is, I just want to prove something to you. A lot of people don't believe in unicorns. But unicorns are in the Bible. Let me just show you. He makes them, maketh them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. Didn't you know unicorns were in your Bible? If you're a Christian, you have to believe in unicorns. There's another 
contextual thing because immediately when you think unicorn, you think of a horse, white horse, you know, poops rainbows or something like that. Um, no, no, the unicorn of scripture, the, the actual word is unihorn, you know, one horn, a one horned animal, which is, you know, extinct now. So we don't know exactly what it looked like, but a lot of scholars think it looked like this. When, when it's talking about, okay, he makes the, the, the Lebanon leap like a calf, Mount Se- a mountain leap like a, a wild ox, a unicorn. This was a big creature, a, a powerful creature. Nobody can just scare that. But God's voice, oh, it makes it jump. Another picture of thunder here. Have you ever heard or, or had your house shake with thunder? Man, I used to be afraid of that when, as a kid. You know, you're sitting inside and all of a sudden the house is shaking and it's so loud outside. There, on that same mountaineering trip when we saw those trees flattened, we were at the top of a mountain, like 13,000, 14,000 feet up, something like that. Um, camping out, we fished, it was awesome. But a storm rolled in. And it, it didn't just roll in over us, it's like on us. We're sitting like in it. It, it was crazy. And that is the loudest thunder I've ever heard in my life. What made it even more impactful was not just the noise, but when our professor said, okay, roll out your rubber mats and sit on, sit on them in the position I was telling you, just in case lightning strikes. I'm like, what? We're about to die. Um, this is crazy. But, but this picture here in Psalm 29 is, is continuing to, to show God's voice. It shakes, it shatters the trees, it makes these mountains jump, and it keeps going. The voice of Yahweh strikes with flashes of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. The voice of Yahweh, or Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. What imagery do you see here? That kind of goes along with what we've been seeing. Thunderstorm, you know, destruction, lightning, you know, flashes of fly, fire. The voice of Yahweh strikes with flash shatters, destructs. It shakes the wilderness and it has shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. We'll come back to Kadesh as well in just a moment. But again, we're getting the picture, some imagery here. Um, the idea that, that, man, God can, you know, shake anything um, with his thunder, his power. And then it comes back and, and it, it does it in such a way that recaps the whole psalm so far. The voice of Yahweh causes deer to give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything shouts glory. Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood, and Yahweh is enthroned as king eternal. It starts pulling all the imagery that we've talked about so far back in from verse 1 to uh, verse 9 and 10. And then it ends, Yahweh gives strength to his people. Yahweh blesses his people with peace. And so you have this picture here. Um, where, where, where God, as this thunderstorm is shaking all of Israel, all, all these, all this stuff, um, and that he can make anything jump, and, and, and he is enthroned in glory, kind of going back to some of the first verses there. He's sitting enthroned over the flood. Yahweh is enthroned as king eternal. And then it says Yahweh gives strength to his people. Yahweh blesses his people with peace. When, who was giving what at the very beginning? The heavenly host or God's people were giving it to Yahweh, giving it to God. He deserves all the glory. But what does God do? 
he gives it to his people. Again, recalling uh, Genesis 1 imagery, God created man in his own image, the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Again, God is blessing his people. This, it's painting a picture without telling you that our God, who deserves all blessing, glory, and honor, he is the one that blesses. He gives to his people, and he gives peace. This thunderstorm is moving in, but he gives peace. The same God of glory and strength given to the Almighty God, this is now the Almighty given back, given his power, his honor, his peace to his people who worship him. He is the giver of gifts. So we come back to... to Psalm, uh, whatever this is, Psalm 29. And, and there's a couple verses here that I wanted to come back to. So first, it talks about Lebanon in a couple places. Um, Lebanon was the, you know, this, this is another contextual thing. We're not from there. Unless you just study Israel, you probably don't know where this is at. So it takes a little bit of work. Anytime the Bible or, or you start why is that there? You start asking, why is that there? It is an invitation for you to dig deep, for you to go further. It's an invitation for, hey, come on in. Oh, I have something amazing to show you. So anytime you ask that question, why, why did it say that? Why did it say it that way? Why did it use that place? Where is that? Anytime you, it's an invitation. And so um, Lebanon, um, I, I forgot a picture. Let me pull it up. So, so Lebanon was the northernmost part of Israel. Um, and uh, what, what's interesting about it is it's an area, so you don't really find it on the map, but Mount Sirion was up there, the northernmost mountain of Israel. And so what, what you're getting is this, this thunderstorm starts on these mountains in, is, in, in the northern part of Israel, these trees, these cedars, and it starts moving down. And Kadesh is the... Uh, southernmost, I almost forgot the word, the southernmost part of Israel. Um, all right, here, here's the picture I want to show you. All right, so Lebanon at the very top and the Kadesh at the bottom. And you have the Mediterranean Sea over there in the, the west. Um, and so you, you, you kind of get a picture of somebody sitting on this mountain at the northernmost part of Israel. And he sees this thunderstorm brewing over the Mediterranean Sea, and it starts to come over the northern part, and then it moves south over the whole, and it just wreaks havoc. It destroys. And this writer sees all this, and he turns it into a worship song to who his God is. That's what Psalm 29 is all about. This is our God. He is the God of power, yet he gives us blessing. He gives us peace. That's what you find out through some of the context of this psalm. You know, when, when you jump into this invitation that it has for you, and once this thunderstorm metaphor lands, um, man, the weight and the message of verse 11 where God gives back, it's just heightened. It's increased. It lands in your heart. Yahweh wants to give lightning and thunder to his people. God wants to give me strength to his people. Even though he is the all, he wants to give me peace. 
And so do you, do you kind of see that? Are, I mean, do, are any of y'all kind of in awe? Of, that's just one little glimpse. And we're going to look at several more over the next couple weeks of this invitation into Scripture of building this cross-cultural traverse or working on this cross-cultural traverse that Scripture invites us into. And so that's, the, the, you know, that's, that's what we're working. So we're, we're trying to do a cross-cultural work with all of this. Um, and, and here's here's what just happened here. We practiced some things: repetition, vocabulary use, imagery. Um, like again, what does that mean? It's an invitation into the text, uh, contextually rooted uh, words and places. It's an invitation into this ancient uh, discovery of these writings, of these places, of these people. And all these methods that we're talking about, it gives us a step to make this, uh, to, to bridge this contextual gap, to do, do this uh, cross-cultural traverse. And so think about it this way. Um, we all have mental databases, okay? And if you're old school and you don't know what a database is, this is for my dad. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, databases, you know, a database is a, a technological, you know, like the cloud, everything, everything digital is just, stored on there. Um, but another way of fra- phrasing it is we have these mental encyclopedias. You know, we have all these things we intake in life and we kind of combine. This is how we see the world. So when I want to talk about, uh, you know, my daughter, I only have, to, uh, all that I have to reference is what I've seen and experienced and learned. I don't know your context. So we all have these mental databases. The authors had their own mental databases when they wrote down scripture. And so when they wrote something down, they wrote it down with, by the way that they, they saw the world. And so if we take our database and try to read scripture with, with what we have, we're going to end up with some misinterpretation, some, some uh, loss of uh, meaning and message because we're reading with the wrong context. And so what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish is building up a cross-cultural database, mental encyclopedia, in your head, just through various resources over time, you learn what words mean, you learn the context, you learn these places. And when you do, over time, you're able, able to understand more and more. And this is a lifelong thing. It's not just, hey, pick up this book and it's going to solve it all for you. It's an invitation of a lifelong time of reading and rereading scripture, growing this cross-cultural database in your head. Um, I was going to, we don't have time for it, but I was going to talk about you know some of the differences in the words that we use you know my generations use versus the words that, you know uh I, I got to share these with your young adult group but wiggle the rabbit ears they're like what does that mean yeah the tv exactly that's something that i just learned from tv or something i don't really know i've never had to do that um now i've experienced a little bit of you know lost connection to the dish you know but even that's kind of going away if you have fiber optic in your ne- neighborhood now, stuff like that. But anyway, that's, that's kind of the whole idea here is our database, our mental storehouse of knowledge. We need to grow the, co- the cross-cultural uh, traverse part of it. We have to cross-culturally traverse back into the, their mental databases, the way that they saw their world. Um, again, heart. Our dictionaries uh, say our, the heart is a hollow muscular organ or the central or innermost part of something. And the Bible sees the heart like that, 
but also sees the heart much bigger. It's the center of emotion. It, it's, in the Old Testament, the heart is the mind. They didn't have a Hebrew word for mind. Your heart was the storehouse of your, your mind. Um, it's, it's also ability. Heart is the ability in somebody's hands or brain or skill. Um, discernment is also has to do with the heart. And, the, and that's just one word. And so if we build up our understanding of that word, we add it to our cross-cultural uh, database. And as we read scripture, we better understand what that means. And it's important because if we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, then we better understand what they mean by that. Um, so, um, you know, the whole idea is like these places like Kadesh and, and uh, Lebanon and these imagery of, of cedars and stuff like that, you know, it's, it's all contextual stuff that we have to upload store in our mental databases so that when we engage scripture we can better understand what's going on this kind of goes to the jewishness of jesus the um the 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 culture of the hebrews back in exodus there's different ways that we have to look at scripture to understand more about why that was written that way what it was written about um ruth is very unique um because they, a lot of people think it was written much later, after the exile. And so they're writing in a way where they're telling a story back in Judges before the exile. But, they're, but it was written here, and it's supposed to connect it all to the context and the culture of the day. Um, and again, you don't, we don't know that unless we do a little bit of work. So here's a couple things I want to show you, just real quick, as we end. I, in, in your handout, I have several different skills and tools that you can use but a couple of them i want to highlight a few ways to practice this cross-cultural traverse this cross-cultural database um, how to grow that in a few ways to bridge this gap um, so you can have a better understanding of scripture one of them is following the repetition of, of words when it's repeated it's a it's a big sign saying hey reflect on this Reflect on this and maybe do some research. So repetition, reflect, and research is an important thing. A concordance. Here's what's really cool about the technological age. You know, these used to all be just pastor's books because they're big, they're thick, and they're expensive. But now all this stuff is online and most of it's free. Um, So a concordance is this bottom book, the biggest one out here. And what it does is it'll show you Every place a, a word is mentioned in Scripture. So right here, peace, a piece of something. 39 mentions in the Bible. And so you can go look at these uses and see what this word means in that context, in that text. That's a concordance. And now you can do that through, I have, I have Blue Letter Bible highlighted, uh, mentioned in your handout and then the, in the Ruth practice. But you can just Google real quick. You know, where is this mentioned in the Bible? You can use apps for it as well. um, And it'll show you every use of that word. Then you have things called dictionaries, but specifically Bible dictionaries. It'll take biblical words and outline the the use of that word, the definition in that context and culture. Um, Again, a big book. But all this, uh, many of this stuff is free online these days. But you can still buy it if you want to. Um, Study Bibles. I know many of you, I can see some study Bibles out there. They're great resources um, because it'll show you the scripture and provide a little bit of commentary, a little bit of explanation on parts of the scripture. Um, And it can be a great help of crossing this contextual gap. Um, And then you have 
commentaries, which are like study Bibles, but all they do is commentate on the Scripture. So this one is, is kind of a commentary, but also talks about the literature, literature the theology, um, the geography a little bit. But this is just about the New Testament. This is a whole commentary on the New Testament and its world. And so I can bridge a bunch of contextual gaps in the New Testament just by opening this up. Um, it shows me the ancient city of Corinth right here um, just by opening it up. Um, I have several others out here. You know, there's one, my favorite one on the Gospels is out here. Um, there's one, I think, on Genesis there. Um, they have an apologetic study Bible, how to, how to defend your faith, uh, articulate your faith to, to know why you believe what you believe. Um, there's one on the Pentateuch. And then you have some out here that are just on one book of the Bible, a whole book on just one book of the Bible. And there's some on just little sections of part of the Bible. It's, it's crazy. You can go as crazy as you want with all this. Or you can just keep it simple, and that's totally okay. I have, I have two big books here that cover the whole Bible, and it can help you make some contextual jumps, traverses, bridging this gap um, with context. Um, and at the end of this study, I'm going to show you all the resources I've used for this uh, study, and some of them are really easy. Some of them are like uh, master level, graduate level stuff, um, but you can pick some of that up. You can order it on Amazon and make these contextual leaps and understand the Jewishness of Jesus or understand these places in Psalms or how this poetry works or what this repetition is pointing you to. So to end, because we're out of time, the, 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 one of the greatest challenges of the Bible is that it takes work. When it comes to context, when it comes to reading the Bible as ancient literature, it takes work. And that's hard. It doesn't mean you have to go learn Hebrew, though. So many people have done that so that they can produce resources for us as, as just normal people to be able to cross these contextual gaps. We must become aware of our modern encyclopedias, our modern databases that we unknowingly uh, impose on Scripture, and we must become aware of the author's mental databases, mental encyclopedias, how they saw the world, and so when they wrote it down, this is what they were communicating. This is what they were talking about. Because it's through these lenses that we discover the intended meaning that the authors had for us in Scripture. So to understand that the Bible is ancient literature means that there is a greater context in every verse and page in Scripture that we must step into in order to understand the meaning the authors were getting at, even the messages Jesus was teaching us. It means picking up some tools, using them to make this cross-cultural traverse um, and, and, and love our ancient neighbor, in a sense, to love our ancient author by understanding where they were at when they were writing this. That's reading the Bible as ancient literature. Um, that's all we have time for because um, there's a VBS meeting, but this will help us in reading the Bible like Jesus. Next week, we do my favorite one, reading the Bible as meditation literature. Absolutely my favorite. We're going to look at several examples, like we did today, Psalm 29. We're going to look at several different ones um, and get to kind of dive into it. And then we'll wrap it up uh, the week after uh, Memorial Day weekend with wisdom literature. What is the Bible trying to do this whole time in our lives? Give us wisdom. Um, and so if you have any questions, let me know. Uh, you can take a look at these resources. Uh, Ruth has it set up to where you can read it as ancient literature. If you've had questions why Ruth goes and lays 
uh, Boaz's feet. This is finally the week where you get to read a little bit about that because it's ancient. It's context. We wouldn't understand in our culture. So thank you all. Um, let me pray and, and you're dismissed. So Father God, once again, may we, may we be led to Jesus through the reading of Scripture, through the study, and in light of all that, be given wisdom to live our lives. So God, I just thank you, and it's in your name, name that we pray. Amen.